the Growth Happens Dawn to Dusk podcast with Matt Devitt. He talks with people about their journey, where they succeeded and failed to help others on their quest. We're all on a journey that starts and ends every day. This is when we grow between dawn and dusk. And now your host, Matt Devitt. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Growth Happens Dawn to Dust podcast. This is Matt Devitt bringing you another fantastic episode with my guest this week, Jerry Maguire, who's going to drop some unbelievable just knowledge information on selling, how he approaches selling, and what he's seen with his 15 plus years in industry, all holding positions that had to do with creating value for his end user. So before we get into that, Definitely leave a like, subscribe. Let me know what you guys are thinking about the podcast. Again, I hope this is being a lot of value for you. So if it is, anything you can do to help promote it is much appreciated. So without further ado, let's get right into this one with Mr. Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire, thank you very much for your time today. I truly appreciate it for being on the Growth Happens Dawn to Dusk podcast. Really looking forward to talking with you today. Yeah, happy to be here. So just to give everybody what I would paint as a thumbnail sketch, and I definitely want you to fill in some of the detail, but um, so you and I cross paths on LinkedIn. Uh, We both like putting content out there. We both like uh, trying to help people in uh, in very novel and interesting ways. You've been with AAF International for 15 years. You're now their global VP. And what else would you like people to know about you? I mean, that's the high level overview from LinkedIn, but you know, what's your, what's your Mm -hmm. elevator pitch when people go, Hey, what do you do? (laughs) Good question. There's a few, there's a few things that I do in that, you know, at work, what I say is that I bring clean air to life. It's something that I'm extremely passionate about. And so, so are we entirely at AAF International. We want to deliver clean air into people's lives to better their lives. And we want to bring it to life in that we make it real and actionable so that people can make decisions on how can I have cleaner air in my office my home, you know, any, anywhere in my environment. So one, I'm really passionate about that. Also, you, you mentioned putting content out on LinkedIn. One thing about me is I want to give back in a way that I didn't get when I was early in my career. So whether that's understanding how do I have a meeting with the CEO or how do I make progress in my career? What ultimately matters to executives when they're looking at talent that's coming up or helping people understand how to make it through deals successfully on the sales side, how to market themselves. Those are the things that I love to do. I love to give back. And because in some ways I didn't get it. And then later in my career, I did. Some people gave to me. I'd like to do that for them. And I mainly do that on LinkedIn. So just happy to have those platforms out there and available to us so that we can interact and make these connections like you and I did. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, interesting how the uh, social media world somehow gets a bad rap, but when used properly, it seems to be a good way of uh, distributing some of that karma that we got from other people and, uh, you know, pass that along to others that can use it as well. Absolutely. Like so some of, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, when looking over in, in some of the conversations that we've had in the past, you've done a lot. It, it seems like all of your time has been with a sales focus. What really got you started onto, you know, that path in, you know, in quotes, you know, sales, and you could definitely define that however you'd like. Um, and I'd be interested in how you actually see sales, but how did you get started on that path? I grew up in a family of salespeople. So my dad was in sales, my uncles were in sales, or they were entrepreneurs. My grand, one of my grandfathers was in sales. So I think to a nurture, it was a little bit in my blood and growing up around that, I was very interested in it. I'm not going to say that it was destiny because there are other things that I thought I might be interested in. You know, when I was in high school doing my high school project, I thought I was going to be an orthodontist. And I quickly learned that while orthodontia is great for a lot of people, I'm sure that was not for me. I enjoy research, understanding why somebody makes the decisions that they do, how to help them make decisions, improve their lives. Sometimes that happens through products. Sometimes that happens through services. Sometimes it happens 
of coaching. Sales has given me that avenue. But as far as getting my career started, I had a friend who went to work for a small business. And I, at that time, was uh, just in school and managing a so GNC. I was really into fitness and working out and whatever else. And I, and I loved that and I enjoyed it. It wasn't my career long term. He went to be a salesperson for this small business and maybe a $10 million organization. They had a salesperson in San Diego, which was where I was from. I was living in Utah at the time. And he said, if you're interested, I can connect you to get interviews. And I had those interviews met with the home office and eventually got the job. And that, that was my first job in outside. Nice, 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 nice. So it was really just a, like you said, you didn't want to say it was destined or, or completely in your genes or, or in the roots, but it definitely seems like you were always um, exposed to it. How, how do you, you know, so you said a lot of your family members had sales jobs. Do you, you know, kind of thinking back, how did they expose you to sales? Because it seems to me, this is my perspective, that sales always seems to have this misnomer of being um, slimy or smarmy, you know, the first time, you know, some people think about this is like the, the car salesman and things like that. But mm. it sounds like you had a very different view on this. So what do you think you saw within your family that, you know, either made you interested in it or gave you, um, you know, a different feel or view of what sales actually was or is? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. One of the things that I didn't realize was going to be extremely helpful for me. Serving my dad. My dad, we used to give him a hard time because, and as a kid, I didn't fully understand what he was doing, but we would always hear him, and I'll, I'll kind of put some air quotes around this, talking to himself in the house. But as I got older and I realized what he was doing is he was practicing his presentations and his conversations with prospects and clients, he was mastering his craft. And that was as far back as I can remember. He would be walking around the house, practicing his pitches, or I'd hear him through his home office door because he was self-employed. And I would, hearing that taught me how the dialogue should go, almost subconsciously. But also, I knew he was an ethical person. And he would go out on appointments either at night or during the day, and he would share some things with me as, as I demonstrated interest and he'd get me involved as much as we could. I knew that he was leaving the house every day to try to go help someone's life get better. So whatever people want to assign in terms of meaning or stigma with sales, I knew there was something different to bring to the people and a lot of from my dad. Do you still see... I guess so. So when you go and you work with new people and so on and so forth, do you still see that being a, a common stigma with those that are entering into, once again, in air quotes, the sales, um, you know, job or, or position? Has diminished significantly over the years. I think if we look back over eras, the 80s was a time when that stigma was proliferated heavily maybe into the 90s, I think it started to dissipate as people got more intelligent about what sales should be. One of the quotes that I really appreciate is the fact that closing is not something that you do to someone. Closing is something you do for someone. And the only way that you can shift that is to make it a joint venture approach. So when I, when I meet with some clients, and I, I made a post on LinkedIn about this recently, what I've learned over the years is that when I meet with a client, it's perfectly okay and valuable to say at the beginning of this, my only goal is for you to get your outcome. Now you're gonna, every sales journey is in a different place, but at the appropriate time, you're gonna say, my goal is for you to achieve your goals. This is what I understand those goals to be. Am I on the right track? Yes, no, or, or some sort of clarification comes. And then I'm looking for an opportunity to help you achieve those goals. If I do not see that I can do that with our products or services or in a way that fits inside of your business, then I'm going to tell you that. And I'm going to try to direct you to someplace if I know what that is, 
that can help you accomplish those goals. I think that more and more people have come around to that type of approach and that's helping it. That being said, I'll say something that may or may not be popular. <laughs> there, are, there are aspects, because I'm a buyer too. As an executive, I'm a buyer. So I sit on the other side of the table. There are some segments of software sales or SaaS, software as a service sales, that are starting to swing the pendulum in the other direction. It's a little more high pressure. It's a little quick. And I don't know. I could, I could guess at some reasons why. I hope that it doesn't represent some sort of massive swing. It's just a small segment. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. The, uh, you really don't want that other extreme of when people start thinking of like the boiler room, you know, where it's just, um, and, and, you know, there's some areas out there where the, the smile and dial makes sense to where, I mean, these are very transactional um, deals that are going down, but a lot of the deals that you, I'm assuming you are a part of are a little bit more, complicated and you know again in, in quotes to use another popular sales tune you know solutions provider or something of that nature um mm -hmm. do you see that being one of the big you know differences in the in the, kind of what you're seeing between SaaS versus um you know what you see within uh what you're doing right now i think that it depends on the transaction side and it depends on the culture being created within the organization every organization has the opportunity to have altruistic intentions and to drive that culture down whether it's a 50 dollars a month software that somebody is purchasing or whether it's a million dollar a month program i think that's a cultural decision however it's it's easier in my mind for smaller, faster transaction organizations in the absence of a leader who drives the right culture to, to kind of default into that. So leadership and culture matters a lot. I do tend to spend, when I'm involved in deals, they're enterprise or complex or solution-oriented deals where it's multi-stakeholder, it's larger deals, sales cycles might be a little bit longer, and it's that it's not going to be it tends not to be a natural outcropping of that dynamic for it to be a pressure situation because pressure isn't going to help you there it will it will push you out before anything else yeah that makes sense a lot yeah i i i always appreciated so for myself you know previous history so i was a process project engineer for a long time in heavy manufacturing and the vendors that i would deal with that would give me an honest no that their piece of equipment or service wasn't what was best for me, I always remembered them for something else because it was so hard to find people that were willing to steer you in the right direction, even if it meant they weren't gonna make, you know, a dime off of you based on that information. Uh, I always I always ended up remembering those interactions much more than um, somebody that may have had a piece of equipment that worked for me. Just kind of interesting how that aligned with what you were seeing as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's a play for the long game on the part of the seller. And the short game play by the sellers who don't think that way don't realize that loyalty is going to suffer as a result. Because if, you, if I buy something, granted, it is always the buyer's choice. So I'm not, I'm not into buyers playing the victim card, but I, we're talking about selling dynamics here. But if the buyer takes the bait and buys something that's not a good fit or was misled, which a salesperson is going to have to own that if they were dishonest, but hopefully there's no dishonesty. Let's just talk about the, the pressure dynamic. Mm -hmm. Then they're going to regret their purchase and they're going to fire you at the first chance they get. And they're going to tell 10 of their friends. People are much more likely to advocate negatively than they are positively. And, and that comes from that sales experience, which way that pendulum swings. Yeah, that completely makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. So what are, so we talk about the long game here, which um, I'm going to make the assumption is the way you want to view the relationship you have with your clients is definitely over the long haul. What are some things that you try to keep top of mind when you're going through that? So, you know, you, you do know that you're, 
creating a, a win-win situation that's over, you know, a long duration, you know, years or decades. The first thing I try to think about is connecting to their outcomes. If we don't connect to their outcomes or higher order business problems, if we're talking about challenges, then we're not going to be in it for the long haul. It's going to be transactional or temporary. So first, it's important to understand what those things are, whether it's via research that you confirm via questions or you have an opportunity to have a conversation and you draw those things out. What are the top one to three outcomes for this quarter, the top five outcomes for this fiscal year or calendar year? Understand what those things are, and then you have an opportunity to connect to them. Researching it in advance, you can get a long way doing that, um, but then also sometimes you need to get it in the conversation. So that, that's first. Second, just like we talked about previously, I recognize very early on that if this particular challenge that they're facing is not one that I can solve, then I'm going to acknowledge that and I'm going to bow out. What's ironic about that is a lot of times they say, well, wait, you know, you probably could help us and whatever else, but if you really can't, then you have to decline. And I have had salespeople do that for me and I have the utmost respect for them and I look for opportunities to bring them back in the deal. But nobody's hunting to go hungry. So once you, when you find that there is an opportunity to fit, then it's all about delivering disproportionate value to the person on the other side of the table at as many intervals as you possibly can. And if you do that, then you're gonna have, if you deliver, if you help them achieve their outcomes, and if you're delivering disproportionate value, you're going to have a loyal following. With the, the value portion, what are some of the ways that you found yourself to provide disproportionate value? I mean, the things that come to mind are the standard, you know, quick ROI or, you know, easy install, good follow-up customer service. But do you have a couple of those that you kind of like, as, as you've been through this and you step back and you look, you're like, why aren't people using X or providing Y to help them differentiate themselves? And even though they may be you know, big ticket, small ticket, whatever it is. But what are some of those things that you're surprised you don't see people using or doing more to create that uh, value delta? I think sometimes, to answer kind of the last part of your, I think sometimes people are so in the weeds of trying to get their outcome that they have lost sight of the customer's outcome. They've lost sight of empathy. Me now... 15 years removed from the first day that I went out and made sales calls, I've had the opportunity to participate as a senior manager, executive level buyer, and a stakeholder inside of deals. And that has given me a lot of insight into the mind of the buyer so that I have empathy for buyers when we are, when we are selling to them or developing solutions for them. I think if people took a step back and said, what are my buyer's fears? What are the challenges that they face? Not, not as a bullet point on a slide, but really putting yourself in, in their shoes, thinking about the mind of the buyer and what they face on a daily basis. That empathy would give you the path to value. Here's some of the things that, that buyers say they care about. Help me avoid pitfalls and landmines. Educate me on new issues and outcomes. Help me navigate alternatives. Help me create consensus amongst the peers inside of my organization. The, the interesting paradox of a seller who's not bringing that disproportionate value versus one that does is they probably have the knowledge to do it, but they haven't taken a step back and said, what, what is this buyer living with every day? I can give them the insight. I can be their guide because I've been through a thousand transactions when they've been through five. So I know, I know all the pains, the pitfalls, the problems, and whatever else, but you have to make that conscious decision, and, and that might be a little bit high-level conceptual, but that's the mindset that will give you the insight to decide what value is going to make a difference for your particular product and service and for the particular buyers that you're going to work with. And then you look for any low-cost, high-value insights, content, 
adders that you can give to them in measured intervals and make sure you have regular reviews because their outcomes are going to shift. And if you don't too, then you'll be left out in the cold. So what, so what would be if, if they come to mind, but what is, you know, maybe one or two of those high value, low cost, but then also I'm, I'm also interested in the other side. What have been some potentially when you look at the ratio, like very low value creation, even though you thought they were going to be high um, and potentially high cost. So I don't want to call them a failure because they're always something we learn from. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But what are some of the things where you've seen, you know, like just the high value and then contrast it with something that you thought was high value, but was actually, you know, low value and where that disconnect might have happened? <laughs> Good question. I'll, I'll, I'll speak to one example that can cut both ways. And I believe this is something that, that every organization can leverage if they really look for an opportunity to do it. Some organizations do it great. Some do not. And that is what I call an audit. So you can always audit the customers, the, the prospective customer's environment or world or process. And because of your fresh eyes and your intimate familiarity with other businesses that you have sold into or your familiarity with a particular product or service, you can help give them those insights that I mentioned earlier. Offering someone to do an audit of their facility if, if you're selling a physical product into a facility management organization or towards a particular marketing process, so the distribution of social media content, or maybe it's data cleanliness or search engine optimization on your website. How are you performing versus your competitors? What are the gaps? What are the risks? Performing an audit of the client's world can be very valuable, and the cost is really just leveraging the existing sunk costs of people inside of your business in order to serve bigger, better, more predictable outcomes in terms of sales and closing of deals. The way that that can turn on you is if you're not recognizing whether or not a customer is committed to the process and you do instead what's called free consulting. So people have to figure out what this looks like inside of their business, but if somebody is going to do an audit for free of some kind of process, then you want to get a commitment from the client that you'll be able to come share those findings with the key stakeholders. You, you come and present your report of findings. That's language that, that we use, that I use. You present your report of findings, and that report of findings clarifies for them where their gaps are, what the solutions could be, and ultimately leads back to your solutions. Where people fall down is they don't get the commitment. They don't recognize that somebody's just using them for free consulting. And it becomes a high cost of time and low benefit to the client um, if you don't deliver the presentation well. So people will do all this work on the audit and they fall down on the presentation. The presentation is what matters. The documentation is what matters. All your 10 hours, 20 hours, five hours of work, whatever it was, doesn't matter if you can't communicate it clearly and in a valuable way. Yeah, so, that makes sense. That's, that makes a lot of sense. So I hope that was a good example. Yeah, no, that was great. Because, um, yeah, because again, you know, being in heavy industry, I mean, I've had guys come out and do the audit, you know, knowing full well that, uh, you know, we would have three people looking at the job. And sometimes, you know, the, you know, all the audits were about the same, but it was the way it was presented you know, and, and me not knowing it because I was just a young process engineer at the time, but you could tell like who had different people in the audience and kind of thinking back to it now, it's like, oh, so maybe that's why it worked well. It's like they actually knew who had the pull, had the purse string, so to say, um, and made sure that they were there, but then, you know, delivered on whatever their, their personal or, uh, you know, objectives were within that. So it makes a lot of sense. It, it definitely makes sense with the, uh, the standpoint of you can differentiate yourself there, but you've got to make sure you've got the right people, um, you know, at the table, on the bus, whatever pun you want to use, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I learned that the hard way once, and then I never went back again. I, I did the free consulting because I trusted that they would give me the time of day 
but they didn't. And then I adjusted my approach, get the commitment early or don't make the effort because if they can't commit to you, then you're, they're probably not going to commit to spend some money with you either. Are there, I guess, so how do you, how do you end up getting that commitment? Do you just go with verbal? Um, I mean, I've seen it a bunch of different ways, you know, commitment to follow up and we're going to meet at this date, you know, once the audit's done to, you know, Hey, we're going to charge you X number of dollars to evaluate this. And if the sale goes forward, we'll just, you know, that will just become a part of the original cost. So effectively kind of crediting it back into the project itself. Yep. Um, what are some ways that you guys have done that in order to, you know, garner that commitment to at least keep the conversation and the project moving forward? Yeah, there's, there's a few different things that play into that. Everybody has to figure out what works for them. Right. One way is, is to charge for the audit or at least present the value as a price. So the investment on our part is $5,000 of time and expense and in you know various investments. However, if we're able to, if you, if you will commit to us coming back and presenting our report of findings on this date at this time, and these people will be in the room, then we'll go ahead and move forward in the audit without any investment on your part, as long as we can have that meeting. So you frame the value, you get the commitment, and then you follow up via email with that commitment again, just to confirm our meeting. This is what we said we would do. Will you please shoot me an email back and make sure that we are on the same page? There's a few things that happen there. Number one, if you actually charge for it, people definitely take it more seriously, but every industry and every service is going to be different as to whether or not people will actually pay, but at least frame the price. Then that gives you the opportunity to get the commitment verbally then when you follow up with the email, you have it in writing, so to speak, and that's kind of the digital version of people signing on the dotted line, but also there's some unconscious influence that takes place around something called the law of consistency. Small incremental commitments builds momentum. People are likely to be consistent with what they've already done or said. So those are, those are some of the key tips that can help you do that. And outside of that, there's a certain level of trust that people have to create across that sales journey. And you hope that making those little commitments, people are going to keep their word. And most of the time they do in my experience when you manage it that way. Yeah. I like, I like the points that you bring up in there with the, uh, you know, putting a, a date to follow up, you know, the value of, of whatever service you may be providing that you can present on, but then locking down who you want at that meeting. That, that, that's a really interesting point that I don't think always gets done. The first two are pretty easy, right? You know, this is what it's going to cost. This is what we're going to cover. This is when we're going to meet. Um, but really locking down, not just the person that may have directly contacted you, but trying to figure out who the key players are and getting them into the, uh, the contract is, is really key. So how do you go about figuring out who the other people should be to, to be a part of that meeting? There are two places that that comes from, research and experience. You can start with <laughs> research. And, and a lot of people still miss that opportunity. So I'm in the process. I review deals all the time. I'm coaching internal salespeople. I'm working with external salespeople and channel partners and things like that. And I'm, I'm shocked at how often people don't build their buyer's table. That's language that we use. So you got to build your buyer's table, who's going to be there, who should be there, because you, under, you, may, you may have an experience repeatedly, which you should learn from where you've got these five people at the table and then purchasing or supply chain comes in at the very end and tries to drive down your unit price or purchase price or you know, whatever it is. Okay. Oh, bla blasphemy, just, Jerry. Blasphemy. Purchasing <laughs> would never do that. Come on. Right. Well, and, and there are reasons for that. They're, that's their job, number one, at least as they see it. And their metrics don't match the rest of their teammates. Sometimes they're compensated on something called purchase price variance. Well, when you're selling physical products, that means that if purchasing, if the organization had bought a product for a dollar last year and purchasing has a target to 
create a 5% purchase price variance or PPV, then they have to buy that for 95 cents this year. Who are they going to take that from? They're going to take it from vendors because that's where they're going to go. So the, the thing about building your buyer's table is better to bring them in early or bring them in in whatever way makes sense based on best practices for your particular product or service. But a lot of people don't do that. They've got two people. They've got three people. There should have been seven. They didn't create consensus amongst that group. And that's super important because even more important than them connecting with your solution or product as the answer is them connecting with each other first to agree that it is because most deals fall apart because they can't agree with each other and it's much safer and easier and more comfortable to stick with status quo doing nothing. So you can do research in advance. LinkedIn is a great simple tool for that. LinkedIn sales navigator allows you to go even deeper on that front, but then it comes from experience. Just like I said, people come in late into deals. Who are those people who tend to come in late? I need to account for them beforehand. I, uh, there was somebody in the background who never came to meet with me, but I was told they were the person who blew up the deal or almost blew up the deal. Build the seller's table. And then also something else that a lot of people don't do is build their seller's table. So we say, look, you do not have to be one on seven. That's a pretty rough game of zone defense. So call on people inside of our organization. If there's a CFO on the other side of the table, why not bring your CFO and do some pregame prep with him or her? so that they can speak the same language and that other CFO feels comfortable and they trust them because they know that they get it. Or it's a process engineer like yourself. Some, some of our best sellers inside of really complex applications have been bringing the engineers along with us to speak the other engineer's language. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's uh, yeah, that's, it's interesting as you say that, cause in my head, I'm, I'm seeing this, you know, standard, table where everybody's setting around it and uh you know you've got their side and you've got our side and you've, you're truly trying to match the two but then again you're not always trying to match to win which i think this is going to go back to one of your earlier points you're trying to match to make sure that they understand all of the value that's being brought together within this partnership and um it almost seems like you would see that as a disservice to not have the right people from your side there to present all of that value that you're ready to provide within the partnership. Right. When it comes to multi-stakeholder, mid-size to larger size deals, I don't see why you wouldn't. I just, I've seen it work too many times. It's pretty simple too. You can anticipate how this goes. You've seen enough deals and, it kind of blows my mind that people don't do this, but anytime I've done that, it's gone even better than I could have hoped. So I just keep doing it. And the team gets the results accordingly. And so does the client, which is the most important thing. The, you and I were talking about this before we started recording. And uh, again, like we said, you know, we connected on LinkedIn, which is I think why you chuckled when you brought it up, but, one of the recent posts you put out was reaching out saying, hey, we'll review deals. And you just talked about how you do some of that, um, you know, internally, externally channel partners and, and looking over those deals. And you recently put that out there and just tell everybody like kind of, you know, how that went, not to shift gears too much. But I think it's really interesting yeah. because, you know, you're not just talking about this as a person who's read a bunch of books and been to a bunch of seminars like you're actually a practitioner within this. So, um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear how that, how that, uh, that post went and, and, you know, who took you up on your offer to help them review their deals. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a lot of fun. That was just last, I want to say last Friday. And really I was I in the mornings meditating, thinking about my personal outcomes, family outcomes, work outcomes, and, how can I be of greater service to my community, to other people? How can I give back? I've been blessed with certain things. How can I give? And that's a question. And part of that inner dialogue with myself is, 
what do I have that I can be of service with? And these bigger complex deals is something I'm really working on. Success, and I've had people coach me, and I thought, what if I just offered to help people with that? And let's have some deal reviews. It's what I do this already, and we're getting positive outcomes. How can I use that in service to So I posted on LinkedIn. I love working big deals and uh, recently closed some big multi-million dollar deals. And I've been blessed, as I mentioned before, to be taught by other people later in my career. I would have taken it earlier in my career. I was grateful to get it later, but I wanted to give back. So I offered that. I said, I'm going to clear my lunches next week. And anybody who wants to work a deal with me, I will Zoom record it. I'll take notes. I'll shoot you feedback. We will work anywhere between discovery and proposal slash negotiation, certain deal size, certain amount of stakeholders involved. And, you know, you and I were joking a little bit like it was it was like this part of the Anchorman movie when they just all in Will Ferrell says, wow, that escalated quickly. That that was kind of how the dynamic went in a very positive way, because I had a lot of people reach out to me and I booked out for two weeks instead of one, which I was happy to do. If people are looking for that service and they saw some value there, I was happy to give back. And the only reason I didn't extend beyond that is because deals are going to move dynamically between now and then. So I think it's something that I will continue to do. Had the first session yesterday, an opportunity to give back to somebody. They got a lot of value out of it. And that's, that's extreme value for me to be able to be of service. So with the people that reached out to you, did you see any kind of themes uh, repeating mm -hmm. items that they were either asking for or even just themes that you saw within the deals they were approaching you with? Yeah, <laughs> I'm looking for that myself. And I, and I think I've started to see some. It's a, it's a little bit early on. The seller's table and the buyer's table that we talked about before, mainly the buyer's table, I think that's a pattern in that first you need to build it and make sure that you have the right people at the table, but you also have to understand the mind of those people. What is What are the realities of what they're doing on a daily basis? Like I was talking with somebody yesterday. They've got what I, what I use language-wise as the eel in the deal. So think about an eel. Nobody wants to hang out with an eel, and if you see it in the water, you're probably running. The eel in the deal is the person who doesn't want your deal or is antagonistic towards your deal as they sit today. And to make it worse, they come in late. And now they're kind of blowing things up. Those people can be accounted for in the way that you present. And what I find consistently is people don't have a, a standard methodology of, present, of making that presentation that is meant to move you towards closing the deal. And one of the things I went through yesterday, there's four simple steps that we use. We use a concept called wow, how, proof, and summary. It's just a, a mechanism you will remember the different chunks of the presentation that helps ensure the client is always first, so are their outcomes. Then you, you get credit for all the work that you've done because you've done diagnostic work prior to this. You itemize the effort that you've put into the deal. That gives you credibility with anybody who's sitting at the buyer's table, even the people who don't know you. Then you itemize what you learned as part of the diagnostic process. And the, what you've learned is what their goals and outcomes are. You work to confirm that or clarify that also earns you credibility. Then you identify the challenges or the gaps, the challenges and the issues that create the gap between where they want to be and where they are today. Because if there's no gap, there's no sale. There's no deal to be made. There's no value to be brought. Then you show them how you can help them overcome those challenges. You satiate their fears and their concerns by showing them exactly how that process is going to unfold, how you're going to minimize the impact of change inside of their organization so you maximize the positive outcomes. You have an executive summary at the end that tells them everything that they will get, achieve, reduce, and it's like you will achieve, reduce, maximize, you know, whatever these things are, and then you end on that executive summary slide. You do not end, this is a pet peeve, but also a value reducer in a meeting. You do not end on questions with a question mark, questions, and you do not end on thank you. That doesn't bring any value. The backdrop of your closing discussion is 
the executive summary and all the value and the risk reduction that they're going to get. That's probably the biggest pattern that I see. People aren't, they don't have a standard framework focused on the client that aligns them with the buyer, their outcomes, and creates the gap that they ultimately fill in order to get their deals. It's just missing. People don't know how to tell that story or structure it. So I found it interesting when you were talking about within there, you kept bringing up, you know, framework, which to me, I kind of think of template. Um, and I'm going to bring, I'm, I'll talk a little bit because it's just how to work this out in my head. But so you're talking about templates and frameworks, yet I have seen the perception um, that sales is something that's very fluid and you just, you know, um, you're always on your toes, you're thinking on your feet, you know, you're just, you know, winging it for lack of a better word. Um, but as the engineer, you know, I like systems to a certain extent. I don't see systems as being restrictive if they're built correctly. How much mm -hmm. do you see your potential success or what you end up doing from a sales standpoint is really finding a system that creates the either the stages or the steps that you need, but is flexible enough that allows you to adapt it to different customers, you know, not so wild west, but not so locked down that you can't make any changes. Yeah, I sales is a process. Anybody who says otherwise, I'd be happy to debate with them. You know, it's hard to disprove a negative and debates don't always lead somewhere, but I would be happy to debate that because it is absolutely a process. There are certain things if you do, you have a higher propensity to be successful like anything else. There are patterns. You got to recognize what the patterns are. Then you leverage the patterns and you increase your probability of being successful. The same applies to sales. There's a lot of different systems out there. And what I encourage people to do, I have a system that works for me and I've seen it work for other organizations. And I, I like it because it's the one that I've found that I have that flexibility within it, but it has the framework that gives the structure to the entire journey. And I encourage people to explore a bunch of different things, read the books, go to the seminars, test it. I found one that works extremely well for me. And it's called, it, the, most of what I use is a combination of the sales edge, which is a process and a book created by Gene McNaughton, one of my personal mentors and coaches. And then also the challenger sale and the challenger, challenger customer, which comes from Gartner and CEB and a little bit of Miller Hyman's conceptual and strategic selling. But the predominant uh, focus is really the framework created by the sales edge. It takes its end to end from prospecting to proposal to presenting techniques. And if you don't have that framework, I'm sorry, but I just don't, I don't see you being as successful as you would be with one. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, uh, uh, again, so the engineer in me and um, also liking sports and stuff like that. I mean, the way you practice indicates how you show up to the game, right? And so if you mm -hmm. don't have a method that's helping you practice in a fashion that almost becomes second nature, um, it's really mm -hmm. hard to, you know, I th that's why I thought it was funny when you, you know, you had the experience side within there. But the only way you really get a chance to understand what your experience has told you is if you have most of the other stuff under control. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I definitely have a lot of respect for putting systems in place. So this definitely brings me to a question that we've I've been thinking about in the back of my head um, since we've been talking. But, okay, so you brought this up a couple of times, but young jerry starting all over again 15 years ago what do you really wish your first maybe month to let's say six months somewhere within that first year early on you would have either been exposed to and and kind of what i'm asking for is okay when you onboard a new salesperson that's never done it before how do you put them in a position to uh win yeah well i'll speak to the ideal first and I don't know how to make this a reality. So I'm going to speak, I'm going to speak a little bit blue sky in a, in a perfect world for me, as I look back, you know, I was working for a distributor or channel partner, an aftermarket reseller, so to speak, 
of a manufacturer's product. I would have liked to have come to the home office of that organization and sat around the executive table and sat in their meetings for, I don't know, a month straight and just sit there and listen. Because you will, you will then learn what companies care about and what organizations care about. And if you have, if you're level set in what the buyers care about, what they deal with on a daily basis, then you have a much, much, much better chance to serve those outcomes because you have that perspective and that empathy. So if I could do, if I could do one thing, and I'm not going to say this is the best ramp strategy, but you're asking me a perfect world. I would sit sellers down in executive meetings as often as I could within a 30-day window and let them just soak that in because that will help them be a better seller because they will sit on the buyer's side of the table. It doesn't necessarily have to be an executive, the executive table, but it's, it's some of that because you need to understand what the higher level items are within an organization. And then some of it is uh, what we would call a Gemba walk. So go and see what is actually happening with the users of the products or the supervisors of the users of the products and the services. The people have to live with the solution every day. Just observe them. If you had the opportunity to do that, I think you would crush it as a salesperson once they started teaching you process and structure and the questions to ask and who to talk to and who to pursue and what to say. So if I'm hearing you, this is, uh, I'm hearing you the way you're, you're putting this out there, if I'm hearing you correctly. It, it almost sounds like instead of starting very, very narrowly focused, like here's your product, here's your region, you know, these are the customers, now go start meeting them. It, it sounds like what you're saying is we need to pull this person back so they get the cradle to grave, like this is what we are as a company, this is what our customers look like as we go through the process. What are the different values? Touch it, feel it, you know, actually be out in the field if that's required or, or not. Um, and then get them really narrowed into, now this is your product line, this is your region, and these are your customers. Yeah, I would give them context and empathy for the buyer's side of the table or the leaders or the, the stakeholders are gonna be involved in their deals. And it's most easy to do that within your own organization to a certain extent, because from working with a bunch of different organizations and talking with, you know, a bunch of different clients, what you find is things are pretty similar. We have similar problems. We have similar conversations. We make similar trade-offs. And so if somebody can sit there and soak that in, then they're going to be a more intelligent, more emotionally connected, more empathetic seller out in the field. And they can truly say, based on my experience inside my organization, I understand that you know, dot, 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 whatever it is, and then have an intelligent conversation with a client. I think context matters a lot. And we have started to work to manufacture this a little bit. And I know that flies a little bit against what I said, because I haven't solved for that equation yet. How do we take them and just in, in put them right in, in the mix of executive meetings and whatever else? But we we test them via buyer's table versus seller's table in one of our sales trainings after they get their initial immersion, which we call deal ninjas. What salespeople want more than anything else from a sales manager is a deal ninja, somebody that helps them innovate deals. Well, we try to do that for them via really contextual role-playing as best we can. What are the things that customers are likely to say, discuss, question you on? And let's have conversations like real buyers will and then let's tell you what really goes on inside of our business. So we're trying to make that pivot, but I think that would be particularly valuable. If I would have had that experience 15 years ago, it would have shortened the learning curve dramatically. Interesting. Even though you've had a pretty, pretty good career up to this point, and I'm sure you will have going forward, it is interesting that uh, it sounds like more what you were looking for wasn't so much the tactics, but the bigger perspective on the the selling process and how you actually fit into the organization and and more specifically into the partnership between the seller and the buyer absolutely i would say the buying process so too many times and, and gartner 
gets credit for putting this out there in the last couple of years. A lot of times organizations are focused too heavily on selling dynamics and not enough on buying dynamics. Understanding the buying dynamics and the mind of the buyer instead of the voice of the buyer or mind of the customer versus voice of the customer, that's powerful, especially in mid-market and enterprise deals and any others as well. You have to have a genuine conversation. You can't do that unless you have context. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that's interesting. You say understanding the buyer's side is, um, you know, I'm just looking at the, the calendar here. And one of the things that I'll end up doing with uh, with my, my sales director, Nate, is about this time, come June, July, um, we'll start reminding people because I came out of the buyer side in heavy manufacturing and industry. And come June, July, you know what we're all doing then? We're trying to figure out what our budget for the next year is going to be. And so, you know, this is when, if we haven't asked for outage proposals or restock or, um, you know, hey, are you going to underspend in a certain area? Well, I know you don't want to give that back. So how can we help, you know, uh, help, you know, basically take that off your hands, but, you know, help you manage that last little bit of spend throughout the end of the year? Um, yeah, those, those are interesting things because you're right from the seller side, you wouldn't ask that. You know, but as a buyer, those are all things that I remember having to prep so that we could be ready for the next year's um, fiscal cycle. That's right. That's exactly it. And that is an oversight in a lot of seller situations, except the high performers. The high performers are high context, highly empathetic sellers, in my opinion. And when I say high performers, I mean the numbers, the retention rates the satisfaction rates, the loyalty, holistically, they tend to, they tend to have that insight. Yeah. And this is, do you, um, and I guess that's also one of the reasons why, again, backing way up to the initial portion, you know, not only making sure you bring the right people to the table from the seller side, but also um, interacting a lot with them. You know, I mean, just again, from my own personal standpoint, I mean, I've learned a lot from, interacting with really good account managers in my company that has made my presentations better and they have conversely learned more about like oh so that's why the seller values this or that's what the term means or things of that nature so yeah that level of cross training is definitely um huge value without doubt yeah absolutely so when you were setting up that post for linkedin you were talking about early morning meditating, things like that. And one of the reasons mm -hmm. I, I, I wanted to bring that up is, do you have a set routine that when you get it rolling, it's kind of like a flywheel and everything's going well, you get momentum. Um, but when you're just missing it a couple of days or a week, um, you feel things starting to you know come apart a little bit. Do you have like a set routine that you see yourself falling into that's really beneficial? I do. And, you know, there's a saying that I think has probably been overused in recent months slash years. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Uh, for Mike, me, I think it's Mike Tyson. Uh, and even if it isn't, it definitely sounds like a Mike Tyson. Uh, I believe uh, it is, is most often. Yeah, I believe it's most often attributed to, to Mike Tyson. Well, for me, that's that's very real because sometimes it's my kids, you know, I have four kids. And so, yes, I do have a plan. I'll say that. But sometimes there's a kid who hops in my bed and quite literally punches me in the face in the middle of the night and kicks me a few times because they've had a nightmare. So the, the reality, the other part of our lives outside of be, for being professionals is, you know, you have families or you have other commitments, you have friends, whatever else. So for me, one thing that I have learned by success and failure is the need to adapt your rituals in order to get the outcomes that you want. And for me, you want to understand how you're doing, check in on your rituals because you can have good rituals, you can have bad rituals. So my ideal morning is it starts the night before by going to bed on time. I want to be asleep by nine. If I could do it with my kids, I'd be asleep by eight and I'd be up at three. That's me. And I think part of this is self-awareness and understanding what works for you. Are you really productive at night or are you really productive in the morning? But for me, I've got some fundamentals, 78, seven to eight hours of sleep. I 
tend to eat plant-based as much as I can, raw foods as much as I can, gratitude, meditate, meditation, exercise, prayer. Those are things that are part of my daily rituals and my fundamentals that make a big difference. So if I'm in bed by nine, I'm up by four. That gives me a chance to ease into the day silently without kids or anything else going on. I drink 32 to 40 ounces of water just to get hydrated and get going. I start moving immediately. Generally, that means I'm walking, whether it's inside or outside. I start thinking about, you know, what are the outcomes that I want for the day, what I need to accomplish. And then I will work to get some things ready for the kids. That's part of the ritual. So I do that ahead of time so that once the kids are up, I can engage with them instead of hustling them along the entire time. Before they wake up, hopefully I'm on an exercise bike for 20, 30 minutes. I'm writing in my journal, long range plans. So I'm thinking about the outcome of 50 years from now. That's a good day for me. And at the top of a, I draw a mountain peak and at the top of that mountain peak is my family and their family 50 years from now. And then what are the major milestones for this particular year? And what are the things climbing the mountain that I need to do in order to get there? What are the words that I want to describe our family 50 years from now? And then journaling in the middle, what are my reflections? You know, asking myself those questions. What do I love? What do I love to do? How can I be of service to others? And those kind of things. I do that before the crazy sets in. And by that, I just mean the energy of the children. They're, they're awake. They're moving around. And we're going to engage and spend some time together. We're going to talk about their day, homework, what matters to them. And then it's time to get ready. And part of my getting ready is meditation. So I spend 20 minutes. I find a quiet place, which sometimes, quite frankly, is the bathroom. To be clear, not using the bathroom, but there's two doors. So it's double wall protection against the noise, which is just part of life. So instead of fighting against it, which I think some people do, and then they end up in suffering, you just got to find the strategies that help you get what you need. And so I'll, I'll close two doors and I, I try to clear my thoughts. I have a process for that. I ask myself, you know, what do I want? And I try to visualize my day. I have gratitude and then I'm getting ready. I'm connecting with the family one last time and I head out the door. If I do that every day, then I am primed. And I know that I'm hitting on all cylinders. So I try to live to that as much as I can. And again, it starts the night before with the discipline to go to bed. Matt, I know I was talking for a while there. Oh, I'm sorry, buddy. There. Yeah, no, my, uh, <laughs> my, little, my little dog was uh, staring at me with the uh, whimper, so I had to grab him and pick him up. <laughs> um, but no yeah, problem. no, it, it's the, uh, the way you were bringing it up as far as with uh, – you know, really when you're ending your day, you're actually, you know, making sure your next day is good. So you're already prepped and ready to go by the time you wake up just by, you know, basically setting that, uh, that cornerstone, which is, you know, when you go to sleep at night, now, that makes a lot of sense. And I like that routine with the, the flexibility. I mean, I got a, a two-year-old daughter and, uh, yeah, it's pretty much the, the same gig. So just trying to find some of those routines that you can, you can hold, but are still flexible enough to make them fit in your life. That's super important. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and be willing to adapt, especially in family life. I say that because that's what I live. Ten years old, eight years, ten years old, six years old, four years old, eight months old, one child with special needs. When I've had pain, it's because I didn't recognize the situation and the need to adapt. And when I have been well-centered and successful, I've, I've, made, the ap I've made the adaptations instead of blaming the situation. Gotcha. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Just take it in and be flexible. Um, play the uh, play the hand that you've been dealt, so to say. But no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's uh, interesting how some people forget that they have actually more control in a situation than they probably want to um, admit or believe in. Yes, 100% true. And when you've decided or you or you've decided and told yourself that you don't have control, that's where suffering begins. And we always have a choice. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Even doing nothing is a choice. Absolutely. So I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're getting close to 
um, about an hour and I've appreciated all of this, but where can people find you? So they choose, if they choose to, to reach out to you on the vast interwebs, what's the best way to get a hold of you? The, the best place to get me now is on LinkedIn. Jerry McGuire, last name is M-C-G-U-I-R-E. So there's a lot of spellings out there that are W or M-A-G. It's M-C-G-U-I-R-E. LinkedIn is the best place to connect, follow, or message. And would look forward to and welcome connecting with anybody. Fantastic. And I'll make sure that uh, I put a link for your LinkedIn page into the show notes so everybody will have that as just a click away. But Jerry, I definitely appreciate all of your time today. It's been fantastic. And thank you again for your time. This was fun. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Talk to you later, buddy. Bye-bye. Welcome back, everybody. I got to tell you, Jerry was definitely on point with his advice. I really enjoyed just the way he got into setting up a deal. And even before getting into that, just the mindset of wanting to be a guide to help people you know, better themselves, hit that goal and and really just changing the dynamic in how you view, not really you, but how I viewed sales and the definition of selling and what that really meant. So I really enjoyed having Jerry on the show. Glad we had a chance to connect. Hope you enjoyed it as well. If you did, please like, share, subscribe, five-star review. You guys know how this works on podcasts. We definitely live off of the feedback we get from the audience out there. So let me know what you're thinking. I hope you're all enjoying this. And if you want to connect with Jerry, I'm going to have his contact information down in the show notes so you can get in touch with him on LinkedIn. But like I've been saying, growth happens between dawn and dusk. Mm-hmm.